These are always our best thoughts. These are the one usually that just our... occurred to us just now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I didn't spend any time thinking this over before I'm about to say it, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> Hello. Everybody, welcome to another episode of No Script, the unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. We are back. We have got another script. Musical month has come to a conclusion now, and we are back into the realm of regular drama. Um, we will return to musicals. We try to say that over and over because we know people love musicals, so we are going to do musicals. It's not like now that musical month is over, we're back to our right. hatred of musicals. We both back love to- musicals. <laughs> An 11-month be- musical famine. No, we, we will be definitely be doing some in the coming months and in, the, the, you know, in our time doing this podcast. But uh, we are not doing exclusively musicals anymore. We are back to uh, a broad range of scripts. As you know, if you followed our programming, we try to do lots of different kinds of scripts, lots of different kinds of authors to have a really diverse group to look at. Um, so this week, it is 4,000 Miles, a play by Amy Herzog. Yeah. This is a early 2010s play. It is, it, it was on Broadway, it was actually off Broadway, I didn't, sorry, I didn't mean on Broadway, it was off Broadway in 2011 and then again in 2012 at a couple different theaters in New York. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2013. It did not win that year, but I don't know. Being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize sort of is winning, right? In, in I mean, some ways, yeah. <laughs> It'll go down in history as a finalist. It just absolutely won't, it won't technically have won the prize. It lost to another wonderful play called Disgraced. So mm-hmm. it's it, it's a tough thing, but um, it, it did win the Ob Drama Desk Award for Best Play in 2012. Yeah, and uh, we like to do a rundown of the script at the top of it. Uh, As we always say, you'll get a lot more out of this conversation if you've already read the script or watched the play itself, but we like to give you just a little bit of context, and then we're going to jump all over the place, so hang on. But this play centers around a grandmother and grandson. The grandmother's name is Vera Joseph, and her grandson's name is Leo uh, Joseph-Connell. And... um, Leo comes kind of crashing into Vera's uh, life uh, by way of his bicycle. He arrives at her house in the first scene after having gone across the continental United States on his bicycle. And uh, he shows up at her apartment, uh, bicycle and all, and kind of just lives with her for a couple weeks. Um, And this play centers around uh, that time frame of them. Uh, This play is set in 2007, perhaps, uh, so... You know, uh, it, it, but it's maybe 2007 is what the author uh, playwright gives us. So um, yeah, re- really, you know, the setting could work now. It probably will be able to work for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Depends on how fast things progress, because there's not a lot of modern technology or anything in it because of kind of who the characters are. And I'm sure we'll discuss that. So right, the, right. Uh, the playwright suggests maybe 2007. You could set the play in 2018. It really wouldn't change much. 
Yeah, no, it could be. It could absolutely carry straight over. Um, and it take it takes place in uh, Greenwich Village in New York. Um, so uh, this is the end of the bicycle journey for Leo. And uh, there are a couple other people that that uh, kind of cross in and out throughout this. There's as many offstage characters as there are onstage characters in this play. Um, there's two more onstage characters. One uh, one very important one is Beck, who is uh, um. Leo's girlfriend, uh, at the at the start of the play at least, and um, she's going to show up uh, a couple times in, in our conversation, but in the play as well. And then Amanda is another uh, character who who will uh, mention later. But uh, then there's a whole bunch of offstage characters. There's the next door neighbor named Ginny uh, right across the hall from Vera's apartment. Um, there are uh, mentions of uh, a friend group, uh, Micah and Allison, who were Leo and Beck's friends. Um, Micah was on the bike journey with Leo for a time. And then uh, Ginny talks about her two husbands, uh, both now deceased, uh, one named Arthur and the other Joe. Uh, the other one uh, that I did not write down, but the mother, Jane, um, Leo's mother, Jane, is another very central character. And this is maybe a good way to kind of segue into us talking about stuff. Uh, Leo has been on this bike ride across the U.S. and uh, he's been AWOL <laughs> for a while. He's uh, he's stopped communicating with his people and just shows up at his grandma's house. So Jane, his mother, has been calling his grandmother a lot to try to figure out where he is as he crashes into her home. And I wonder, Jackson, if you might talk a minute about why it is that we know that his mother's name is Jane so clearly. Yeah. Well, Leo has this very interesting relationship with the authority uh, matriarchal figures in his life. Um, he calls them by their first name. Uh, no, no, uh, you know, respect uh, nicknames or anything like that. Like, I don't know, mother. Um, he calls her Jane in all of his conversations with uh, Vera. And he, he calls uh, his, I think he does call his grandma, grandma occasionally, but he also calls her Vera as well in conversation. So he kind of, that that's kind of an interesting quirk for him. Yeah. He's like a very authority figure averse. Yeah. There, there's a lot of that kind of thinking in the play. A lot of the characters display sort of, um, very far forward views about society and the world. You know, Leo is a self-described hippie, and he has all kinds of views like that, some of which you might agree with, some of which you might not, and that's not really the point. It's just part of his character is that he is this sort of uber-progressive, and it it causes him to have really interesting views of the world. Like, you mm. know, an, an easy character example of that is right away when he arrives, his grandmother Vera asks, well, have you eaten? And he says, no, I'm fine. And she says, well, do you want a banana? And he, he sort of freaks out. He's like, whoa, jet fuel. And she says, what are you talking about? He says, there's no such thing as a local banana, Grandma. Like, you know, all bananas have been shipped by jet fuel. So he doesn't ethically want to participate in eating this fruit, which is, you know, because it's gotten here by way of harming the planet. 
Yeah, exactly. The kind of funny thing is the the apple didn't fall that far from the tree, right? Because Vera has her own uh, history of being an uber progressive. She uh, was uh, in some way a member of the Communist Party um, when she was younger. Yeah, and she, uh, he says that she's a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, presumably of the United States. Or right. Yep. It's possible of Cuba, maybe? I'm not totally clear on Vera's... Um, how she how, on her life story? Yeah, we do know that there is another play about Vera called After the Revolution, which may reveal some more of that. I've not read that play at this time, but it's possible that Vera has come from another country, maybe. Although that's not highlighted, so I would suspect that's maybe not what Amy Herzog intends. Hmm. She is also there's a lot of parallels between. Her and Leo, actually, within this, they're both dealing with a pretty significant loss still. Um, and and kind of over and over, they both deal with loss a lot throughout this play. Um, so Vera and, has... And, and isolation because of the loss. Yeah. Right? Because they both, prior to this meeting, are in places of extreme isolation. Leo's place of extreme isolation is solo biking across the country. He was not always solo biking across the country before what is revealed sort of in the middle of the play has happens to his bike mate, but now he is solo biking across the country. And Vera lives what is described several times by Leo as just a very lonely life. Mm-hmm. She does not see people very often. She has one neighbor who they alternate calling each other for a brief conversation every night just to make sure they haven't died. Right. Yeah. It's the check-in to be sure that, you know, someone someone knows that they didn't call in that night. And yeah, so that they, they both are kind of dealing with this this uh kind of big loss. Uh Vera Vera lost her husband pretty recently within the last couple months, is that right? No, um, I think it would have been within the past couple of years because she she asks Leo when the last time he was in the apartment, and he says for the funeral, and she does make a point of saying that that was a while ago. So yeah, yep. I think it was a while ago, but it's still fresh for her, fresh enough that she has not even changed the name on the doorbell in her apartment. It still right. says Joe Joseph, who's the name of her former husband. Yeah, and she's still like dealing with the the the, uh, the loss of that other there. Um, I think we'll probably get into her relationships in general, but she was a. Uh, uh, she and Joe were both uh, revolutionaries types together. And she mentions uh, one of the kind of big things that she deals with a lot is she's unable to find words anymore. That's kind of one of her, the big sticking points for her is, is she says, yeah, it's so did, did we say she's 91? I mean, she's, right. she's very elderly. <laughs> very elderly. But still, but still feisty. Still Extremely vivacious. articulate and yeah, yeah. So, but, but she's starting to lose that. You can kind of sense the... The maybe just the, the slowing down. Honestly, there's a couple different ways that she she is annoyed with herself at how slow she is going. Um, she can't open the door quite as well. Um, if she locks both parts of the door, both the you know handle and the deadbolt, it's quite quite a bit harder for her to unlock the deadbolt. She actually fights with Leo about that at one point. So so yeah, both of them are dealing with all of this alone. When they find each other at the start of this. Absolutely. And and Vera has this neighbor who we've mentioned a few times, but they have this relationship, which is 
very separate from each other. There's this sort of weird unspoken rule that they don't ever meet in person. It's just by way of phone calls. And, you know, Vera gives her the the, the art section of the newspaper every morning, I assume just by placing it outside of her door or something. (laughs) Although now that I've said all that, I have to go back because I'm not right about that. We know that Vera has seen the inside of Ginny's apartment at least one or two times because she talks about all of her plants. Right. So, so I, I'll undo some of that. But they do have that. That is mentioned as part of their relationship. That it's almost entirely by way of phone call, and it's a pretty mm-hmm. contentious one. They're arguing a lot. Vera calls Ginny just you know a pain in the butt most right. of the time. Like like the the reason that I brought up the art section of the newspaper is that Ginny calls one morning and Vera's like, you know, my grandson's here. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, so I can't get it over to you. And she's and Vera's all mad because like Ginny doesn't pay her for that section of the newspaper. Right. But here she is calling her and saying, You're late with my newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> and Ginny hangs up on her when she says that she's not bringing it over. So yeah, very kind of contentious. And and it doesn't necessarily go away when Leo gets there, right? Like you can tell that there's some kind of uh, there's there is a softness towards each other, whatever whatever relationship they've developed in their time growing up between Leo and Vera. It's 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 one of affection, but they fight a good chunk of this play. <laughs> like they're in each other's face a lot. Yeah, but because they're both very. They're both kind of disagreeable people. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I I, I hesitate to say that because we only really have them in context of this play. And interestingly, the playwright kind of makes a point about that, that you only see these characters for a brief moment later in the play, which we might talk about. But, you know, we only see them in this place of hardship, which is that uh, uh, Leo has just lost his friend. Vera is dealing with her her mind and her body sort of falling apart after the loss of her husband and and the potential for her to die soon. And so you you see them at maybe their worst. But at their worst, they're both pretty disagreeable. Yeah. <laughs> they they argue a lot, they do things that seem petty a lot. Like Vera pretty routinely accuses Leo of stealing her stuff. Right. And Leo's response is like, you lose things all the time. You <laughs> yeah. forgot where your hearing aids were. Didn't you forget where your teeth were the other day? Well, you think <laughs> I steal those? Yeah. And and he's he's not an easy cup of water to drink either. He's like, you know, he takes her money, doesn't write down all the money he's taken. And he it's, kinda... not, it's not like he's stolen it. She, she tells him that right. he can take money, but he has to keep track of it so that mm-hmm. he can pay her back. And it's revealed that he's not done a very good job at tracking it. Right. It turns, yeah, it turns, one of the accusations she lays against him is that um, he stole her checkbook and uh, and and the money, taking the money out of the jar and not writing it down is brought into it. Turns out he didn't steal the checkbook and it's a nice moment of realizing, you know, the, the, the injustice in that. But he like, you know, leaves for indeterminate amount of times. He's supposed to come back and he leaves Vera hanging out with his girlfriend for a, a, a longer amount of time than uh, she thought she would be. So it's kind of interesting to see these two people, these cantankerous two people come together. Why do you think he's there? It's 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 the question of the play, right? Yeah. What what has led him to decide to spend weeks with his grandmother at the conclusion of what might what might end up being the defining moment of his life? Yeah. 
So let's let's just dive in to all of what's happened as a way to get at this question of what what is he trying to accomplish? What might Leo's goal be for the play? You know, if you're a freshman theater student, you're about to hear four years of what's your character's goal, <laughs> right? That's just, it's the core of plays. What is a character trying to accomplish and how do they try to accomplish it? And what tactics do they use to accomplish it against other characters? So what's Leo's goal? This is a play in which the goals of the characters are as gray and indefinable as any play I've ever read. Mm -hmm. This is more a character study than a plot-driven, you know, accomplish-a-task kind of play. It's it's almost as character a study a play as you will ever find. Yeah. Would you agree with me on that, Jack? I'd agree. Yeah, it's certainly, it's a character study of people in grief, I feel like. And how how you hold it and what comes out as a result of how you hold it. Exactly right. So if, if you're going to play these characters or if you're going to direct it or if you're going to try to do any analysis of it, you have to figure out what exactly the characters are trying to accomplish in their grief. Because if you just have characters that sit around and are sad, you won't have a very engaging play and you won't have been very fair to the script because the script is very engaging. So what is Leo doing there to accomplish it? So what has happened is that I don't know how much of it we should really describe all at once. We're gonna, we're gonna yeah, we're just <laughs> there's gonna a spoil lot. We're gonna do all. a lot of exposition right now. Yeah. So yeah. Leo has a girlfriend named Beck who appears in the play. They, for a long time, maybe in high school, maybe as young college students, were friends with another couple, uh, Micah and gosh, Allison. Allison, yes, and. The the four of them, after Leo does drugs of all kinds, apparently. So at some point before the bike trip, he and Beck got really, and his sister and Leo's sister Lily, who's adopted, which we'll play in here in a minute, got really high on peyote. And they, all three of them ended up kissing each other, which meant Leo was kissing his sister Lily. That, that's probably the result of a lot of different struggles, which all have to do with the fact that Leo really has a hard time with his family. There's some sort of tension and disconnect there. Not all of it I'm entirely sure of what it is, but he really does not get along with his family. So all that happens. They decide they need to get away. So what do these two friend couples decide to do, Jackson? Yeah, they decide they they live out west. Uh, He's going to school in Seattle, right? Um, Well, uh, his family lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, mm -hmm. and we have some clue that they may have previously lived in Seattle. Or in, right. in Washington, or at least out west. Mm-hmm. Um, and I misspoke. He's not. He's definitely not going to school out there. Right. I think he they definitely just is lived leaving. Out there. Not not does not want to go back to St. Paul, where his family <laughs> right. is. <laughs> yeah. So they start out west, and they uh, they just they decide they want to bike across America, uh, across the continental U.S. And, uh, and this is what, after having done some similar things like. At some point, spending some months on a sailboat, right? You know, they're they're all they're all kind of hippies. Uh, they are, and, and self described. And I've already said that, but I want to make sure I say that a few times. We are not <laughs> labeling or judging anyone for the hippie lifestyle. This is what Leo says about himself. Right, he's exactly. a hippie, and this is what he does. And I think there's some deduction to be done about kind of who these people are in general. I think they're people who have taken a gap year after high school because Beck mentions that she's older than all of her classmates. 
Um, she goes in and she says, I'm taking, you know, freshman classes and I'm, you know, two years older than everyone. But still, these classes are great. And and Beck mentions some specific out-of-country things she's done, like service. Like she's built houses in wherever. I don't remember the specific actions or the specific countries. But it was like three or four places that she's gone to do service work. Mm-hmm. So whether the four of them went to do that together, whether Leo, maybe just Leo and Beck were along, whether it was just Beck. Um, I, I don't know really any of that. But Becca, at least, we have some pretty clear indications, has spent several years working for organizations like the Peace Corps or like why, you know, uh, different organizations. So she, we, we have some clear indication of the timeline for her. Mm-hmm. And the others of them have maybe done that, maybe done other sort of gap year, lifestyle change kinds of things. Yeah. Like they, we do know that they lived on a sailboat for some time. Right. Certainly they all dreamed together, right? Like they 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 had these visions for the way they wanted the world and they tried to enact them together outside of the system necessarily. Um so this they all decide that they want to go across this uh this this bike ride across America to meet people and have experiences and it'll be awesome. Um well um, uh Allison, so uh the friend the friend couple is Micah and Allison. We'll just say that one more time. Allison tore t- tore her ACL. So she backed out of it. And uh, sometime in there, Beck also backed out of the trip um, for and less potentially because she got an internship of some kind. When Leo challenges her about that later in the play, one of her responses is like, well, you knew I was applying for internships. So whether that means I got you knew I was applying and I got one, so I did it. Or whether that means you knew I was applying for internships, so you knew I was never that serious about the trip. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. Um, but maybe because she got some sort of internship, maybe just because she decided she didn't want to do it, maybe because Allison couldn't go, unknown specific reasons. Yeah, group dynamic, could have been anything. Um, she decides not to go, and it's just left with Micah and Leo going on the trip together. So just these duo are going to bike across the continental U.S. Great. So they head out. Um, at this stage, most people know where they are, assumedly. No one's worried about them. And what happens along the road, they're in uh, about halfway through at the uh, official, in, in quotations, center of the United States. Um, they're going into Kansas. And uh, they're trying to hit it on July 4th to be as uh, anti-patriotic slash patriotic as they can. And uh, they get there, and what happens, Jacob? Yeah, So, and and this whole experience, what we're about to describe, is something that Leo doesn't talk about until later in the play. Mm -hmm. Virtually all the characters, except for Amanda, who is a sort of side character, virtually all the other characters already know this, so it's not a secret, but it isn't revealed to the audience until late in the play. But what happens is that they're biking through Kansas. Leo talks about how they're taking pictures and maybe they weren't paying all the best attention, but it doesn't really matter because what happened wasn't their fault, which is that a Tyson poultry truck... The, the truck bed becomes unattached and basically crushes Micah to death on the highway. I think he actually says that he's he, he doesn't sustain any bodily trauma other than that the weight of the truck bed and all the chicken cages and stuff pushes him into the mud and he suffocates. Mm-hmm. So a fairly traumatic thing to experience alone. And what Leo does is f- from that moment, he just picks up and keeps going. He doesn't even go to Michael's funeral. He just continues his bike ride across the country. 
and that bike ride is what brings him to Vera in mm-hmm. New York. Yep. So he got he he calls people there. He says he called his mom and he called uh, Micah's mom, but then he then he's gone. He just goes dark and he leaves back going to the funeral for this friend of theirs that they've shared alone. Uh, she shows up at the funeral and says, I haven't heard from him. I, I don't know where he is. And yeah, um, nobody heard from him. Like Jackson said, he goes AWOL. He goes dark. He doesn't have mm-hmm. a cell phone. He doesn't attempt to contact anybody. He just leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's the context for him showing up there, right? He shows up in New York after this long trip um, assumedly trying to, uh, uh, he talks about, uh, the, you dip your, you dip your back tire in the Pacific ocean and dip your front tire in the Atlantic ocean. And, uh, he's here to finish off the trip. And, uh, however, Beck is also here, right? So that's a possibility going to for school. why he's here. Going, yeah, going to college. And um, he actually says that he goes to her first. So he arrives in, in New York and goes to see Beck looking for a place to stay. And Beck is sort of not sure what she's feeling about this relationship anymore right. for many reasons. And she basically tells him, you know, I need some time to think. This is not a good time for you to try to move in with me for any period of time. You can't stay here. Go away. Mm-hmm. And so... He goes to his grand, you know, goes to the person, other person he knows who's living in New York, his grandmother. And he says he's not staying for long. He says several times, I'm leaving the next day. I'm leaving in a few days and stays for several days to potentially several weeks. Mm hmm. Yeah. And he's and he says, uh, I think at one point, I think it's in the conversation with Amanda. He says that he's there also to uh, visit his grandma. Um who uh, he said, you know, she lives a very solitary lifestyle. I wanted to come and spend some time with her. And uh, do you and get I, the I, sense that he's being very genuine in that conversation? But how could he be? Yeah, I think that he's lying. <laughs> I think he's lying. But but there is. I, I, it's hard to justify uh, with with his actions because he he's very. I think he loves his grandma a lot. Actually, um, the the rapport between them is is a very comfortable one. Um, he offers to help with things. Um, he offers to you know teach her how to use the computer. Um, so it's it's not like it's not just um, this isn't this isn't necessarily. It maybe begins as my plan for the evening, where I was sleeping isn't working out, so I came here. But I don't think it 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 ends there. Certainly, I don't. I think it gets to just familiar familiarity very quickly, and an escape maybe of the loneliness. One of the things that Vera expresses later in the play, actually last scene in the play, Leah when Leo decides it's finally time to leave, is she expresses to Beck sort of confidentially that she is not very happy about the fact that Leo is leaving, that she's gotten accustomed to having someone around again. And it's sort of mm-hmm. a sad moment as you realize that this woman maybe is more lonely than she lets on, um, et cetera. And Vera is sort of cantankerously responds that she doesn't want to be pitied and blah, blah, blah. But the expression of I've gotten used to having someone there again is maybe the same sentiment felt by both of them, which is they were both alone by just the virtue of Leo needing a place to crash in New York for a night. They come together and realize how nice it is again to have someone around, someone to argue with, someone to share good moments with, someone to help and love and and take care of. And that becomes a comfortable thing. 
So then what do you think, we, we've mentioned before that this is not really a plot or, you know, goal-oriented play. We've kind of mentioned a little bit of the journey that Leo is going on. What do you think the journey that Vera goes on in this play is then? Um, from when, you know, uh, he comes in and she's kind of in stasis, I feel like, at the beginning. She's not actively mourning. She's not uh, actively... Um, uh, needing to be yanked out of something necessarily. She's just in stasis. So where do you think that's a fair way to start where, where she's starting as a character? Or I think that Vera is facing the end of her life and she's facing it alone or mostly alone. And she doesn't necessarily come out and say that she feels lonely or is worried about facing the end of her life alone. In fact, several times she highlights the fact that she has a family where her neighbor Ginny does not, as if to say, I'm less alone than my neighbor. And yet, Leo is very concerned that most days she does not see anyone. And Vera says several times, you know, some days I just can't leave the apartment. I, I don't feel good enough. I don't want to interact with people. So she's and, – and, and the people around her are dying. Uh, middle, maybe third of the way through the play, she comes back from attending a funeral of what she calls the octogenarians, who's a group of I think seven older people who've been having dinner together for a long time. And the last of them besides herself has finally died. And so she's the only one left of that group. And of course, that's a that's a way to sort of capitalize on or or maybe, you know, bring into clear focus the sort of idea that she's the last to die, that she's all of her friends are dead. And, <laughs> and then, of course, the play ends with her neighbor, the one person who she has contact with on a daily basis dying and her grandson, who's finally the person, the one person to live with her again for a little while, leaving. Mm hmm. Or at least saying he's going to leave because we don't really know exactly That's what happens true. afterwards. But I think I, I I think I'm left to assume that he is in fact leaving. He's gotten a job and he's heading out, heading out. And I think there is I think there is something to say for as I'm picturing these scenes. This this is a tough play to uh to visualize, right? Um, it's a play in an apartment. Uh, I think one room of an apartment even, and um. I think a lot of the tenderness has to do with uh, actor interaction. and I, I. But I think what happens throughout this play is that in helping Leo deal with the grief of the death of Micah, um, which is a slow journey throughout it, um, she Vera winds up being able to air some of her own grief as well, some of her own stories from before. Um, she tells Becca about how kind of awful her first husband was. <laughs> Um, Arthur is and kind this of this is not the one she's mourning, uh, right? The one she's mourning was, I mean, at the very least, her second husband. There might have been another one in between. We're not really sure, but mm -hmm. it's it's her last husband, uh, Joe Joseph, right? But the first one, Arthur, was kind of like you know, you think of Mad Men. Uh, if, if anyone has seen that series, he's kind of a, 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 a she said she calls him a cheater and a drunk, um, and explains a couple different scenarios where he ran off. But she said, "I loved him always, so I always took him back. I loved him till the day he died." And then she's describing Joe, who came with this family. That's the other thing is she is she. I think she is pretty fully Leo's grandmother, but all of Leo's. Uh, parents and uncles and aunts were all, uh, whew, they were all Vera's second husband's 
Joe. Or they they were all children. their stepchildren. <laughs> yes. That that's the that's the easier way to say it. I went the long way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so there is a small degree of separation and you get that in some of her interactions with Jane too. So she gets the chance in fact at the end of the play Leo is wearing Joe's suit. So she kind of gets the, the chance to deal with some of this family dynamic with with uh, an individual from her current family, her living family, that she has clearly gro- grown attached to over the years. Absolutely. And, and you know, these plot points uh, for Vera are sort of this back and forth between company or, or a community and loss, right? Because Leo finally arrives again. Uh, someone from her family is here to see her, to be with her, and then threatens to leave. He decides to stay, and then one of her octogenarian friends dies. He, Leo finally opens up to her and, and reaches out in love, and they have this nice connection in the middle of the play, and her neighbor dies. And then, you know, Leo's there, and Leo's the one that takes care of her neighbor and, and helps her through. Uh, Vera describes him as being, finally be, kind of becoming a man and taking care of his responsibilities and caring for Ginny as she dies, the neighbor— and then he says he's leaving. So it's this its this sort of back and forth that maybe is a larger metaphor, you know, all theater is, but a larger metaphor for sort of life itself of this, this sort of duality between things becoming more communal and less communal, uh, gaining things and losing them. And that duality is, is kind of, there's a couple elements that lean into that too. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, she is quite hard of hearing throughout the play. So there's a lot of these moments of tenderness, especially as Leo begins to divulge more and more of his grief, that are interrupted by the fact that she can't hear him most of the time. Yeah, and sort of jarringly interrupted at times. Mm-hmm. Like the whole monologue where he where Leo finally reveals to the audience and maybe for the first maybe for the first time in his life tells someone what happened and expresses his grief at it. It's this long monologue. It's in the dark. Yeah. It's, it, it's sad. It, you imagine the character, the actor, is maybe finding moments where real physical tears and you know shaking, sobbing occurs. Maybe not. But at the end of this heart-wrenching description of this loss of a friend, Vera says, I haven't had my hearing aid in. <laughs> I haven't heard most of what you've said. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> I love that scene because it is so, I feel like so many of us who, uh, a good chunk of us who have aging grandparents have had this sort of conversation before, right? Um, and and you wonder what would happen if any if either of us were honest enough to say, did you hear all of that? Or I didn't hear all of that. And, and, and that's the tension, right? And still that's, that scene doesn't end that way either. We get one more beat of him after she says that he goes, it's a really beautiful monologue. Um, very visual, all, all in complete darkness, not stage darkness, like silhouette. You can't see facial features is what the script tells you to do. And he finishes, she says she didn't hear him and he lays his head down on her lap anyway. It, it, it's almost like it didn't matter. It didn't matter that she didn't hear all of it and didn't emote completely with it. It was just that he was able to tell someone. It was the act of telling this and getting it off his chest that that did the good, despite overcame the last the lack of hearing and and still did good as a result of it. And, and the fact that he finally comes out and tells 
her what has happened is sort of a longer journey as well because I think it's the first scene, if it's not that, it's the second scene, Vera reveals that Leo's mother is really concerned that he's not talking to someone about the grief that he's experienced. And and Leo, who, as we've said, has a lot of issues <laughs> with mm-hmm. his family and his mother especially, says, well, that's kind of bullshit. She just, she's just being passive aggressive. She wants me to talk to her about it, not just anybody. She doesn't really care and blah, 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 blah. And Vera says, well, I think she just wants you to talk to someone. And ultimately what happens in – there's maybe not a climax but in the in – a, in a reveal, in a revelation moment of the play is that he finally does express some of the things and I imagine probably for the first time a real description of what occurred on the highway. He has a lot of those kind of weird disassociative things at the beginning. For instance, he smiles – all the oh, time. The smiling, yeah. Like in the middle of grief, or not grief, I've said grief too much. I'm going to find a new word. Um, in the middle of uh, tense, sad moments, right? Like Beck leaves him in a conversation. Uh, uh, the a big, uh, it's a beautiful scene between the two of them as they try to parse out what happened uh, while he was AWOL and she was in New York. Um, she says that uh, I we're, we're breaking up. I know the timing is awful, but we're breaking up. And uh, he like he takes it pretty well. They argue for a minute. He takes it less well. She begins to leave, and he like gives her a huge smile and says, "Wait, you forgot your pumpkin." <laughs> yeah, he's got this just <laughs> enormous weird grin. <laughs> And it continues, and it continues after she leaves, and Vera says, are you okay? And he's still smiling, he says, whatever he says, and she she has this, Vera, the grandmother, has this sort of continuing comment about Beck, who she calls chubby. The script is very clear to say she's not really chubby, she's just not a stick figure. Um, And and so Vera, after Beck leaves, after this breakup, says, well, she's lost a little weight, she could could lose a little more, and Leo snaps at her and, and gets really angry about it and kind of is is more mean to her than we've seen him through the play. But through it all, he's supposed to just continue this sort of manic grin. Yeah, which is very disconcerting. (laughs) I mean, right away from the beginning of the play, this is happening. He comes in, he's manically grinning. He's, I forget if it's raining or not, but he's certainly disheveled. He's fresh off. And dirty. It's supposed to specifically say that, too. He's, He's dirty. Yeah, it, fresh off of, you know, this thousands of miles of bike rides, having not showered for, for for a very long time, he comes in and he's smiling widely. At 3 a.m. in the morning, he shows up, and uh, and we, we kind of, we wonder throughout the play if this is going to go away, and I don't know that it necessarily does, yeah? I mean, he maybe gets to deal with some of it eventually, but there isn't a breaking point if I'm thinking of it right. Well, what does what he does at least say is going to happen after the end of the play is that he's going to go back to his family in St. Paul and sort of face the music. And and that is some sort of a revolution or not a revolution, a resolution uh to his journey. If if you took at least part of his journey as the journey of him being estranged from his family. And so the decision to go back and face the music and make his apologies and have the fights is is some resolution to that part of it. Uh, to the to the process of the experience of losing of watching your friend be killed in in what really should be one of the beautiful memories of your life 
crossing, right. you know, biking across the country with your best friend. I mean, there, there almost could not be a more idyllic sort of memory than that, right? And, and what happens in the middle of it is just tragic, brutal loss. Mm-hmm. And his response is to just is just not to talk to anybody. I mean, he, he bikes away, doesn't deal with it, doesn't go to the funeral. And so that process certainly cannot end with the end of this play. And it would probably feel disingenuous if it really did. And maybe that's why, maybe that's why we get such an abrupt end to this play, because such a weird end. Yeah, it's abrupt, and it it, it feels—I don't know—I have a hard time getting much meaning from it. I agree. I mean, and and I can't decide whether that's smart or or or, um, not enough for me. Like, how could you wrap these characters up? I think if you were to try to, I think the journey we go on with these characters is great throughout this play. Um, I don't see a way that you could wrap it up without it being trite, right? Like, these characters are dealing with huge things, um, life and death, uh, with Vera, also with Leo. Um, Leo, as you said, he's going to be carrying this experience with him for a very long time. Like, we'd need to check in almost 30 years later for some sort of conclusion to this through line for him. Um, but I, it, it, the, the break comes right before he's going to go give a speech at Ginny's funeral about Ginny, who he has never met in person. Right, so Ginny's the neighbor, and in the previous scene... Um, Leo has had a Skype phone call with his sister, Lily. And I'm I'm sort of a little, I'm always a little confused about why characters like Lily aren't listed in the character list. Yeah. There's, because I think, I imagine because you'd pre-record her lines probably, and maybe because you don't have an actor playing Lily, that's why. But she has lines. Somebody's playing her. So I I always think you should list those characters, but I'm in the minority, I think, because lots of scripts (laughs) don't. But he has this Skype or video call with Lily, which ends in Lily saying, look, you need to come home. And Leo saying... I need to think about what's best for everybody right now. I don't think that would be good for anybody involved. I'm sorry, I got to hang up. He hangs up the call. He immediately gets a call on on the on the apartment phone, um, and he thinks it's Lily calling back, which he seems happy about, which probably speaks to some of him, him wanting people to sort of pursue him right. uh, into his grief. Yep. Um, but in any case, he picks up the phone thinking it's Lily, and what he hears is like someone speaking in, in, in he can't understand them. Maybe maybe moaning, maybe gasping, maybe I don't know exactly what would be said because as we learn, he's gotten a call from Ginny who is dying. Yeah, uh, either of maybe a heart attack or she can't breathe or she's she hasn't fallen because what he he hangs up and what he hears from the next apartment is a thud, and the script suggests potentially a crashing of some sort, something breaking. So he goes over, end of scene. Next scene, it's the preparation for Ginny's funeral. And this is the last scene of the play. Lots of things are revealed. Some of them we've talked about, the fact that he's leaving, he's got a job, he's going home, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the play ends with him and Vera preparing to go to this funeral. And he's written a speech to give. Um, he, he's hoping that they'll open it up for anybody to speak. And Vera says, well, you've never met her. <laughs> and he right. says, well, that's true, but I'd like to speak anyway. He practices the speech. And then how does the play end? Uh, it ends like, 
she she kind of critiques him a little bit, uh, says that. Well, first of all, she says that was beautiful. But also then she says it feels like it needs a little bit more of an ending. Um, you should say something about the plants in her place that she has like a forest of plants. And he's like, I think it ends with him making a note. Uh, basically, it, it ends very abruptly. He, I don't even think they walk out the door. Um, he's just making a note on his on his uh, speech and the lights fade out as he's adding to the speech about a woman he's barely ever met. <laughs> yeah, the last line is Vera talking about the neighbor, about how she was this great, you had this great green thumb, you know, could grow anything. And he sort of writes that down in his speech, and then that's the end of the play. <laughs> yep. And I mean, I don't know entirely. Perhaps I'm not smart enough or I've not read the play enough times to really grasp what that is supposed to say about their relationship. Mm-hmm. or indicate about the direction things are going. I'm not no. sure. Let me pitch something to you that just occurred to me as you were uh, as you were describing it just now. Um, so I let think me just say that these are always our best thoughts. These are the one usually that just our... <laughs> occurred to us just now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I didn't spend any time thinking this over before I'm about to say it, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> we have to Welcome walk to no this script, back everyone. in a later podcast. We <laughs> <Yeah>. apologize. <laughs> so I think we actually do get a tad bit of conclusion there for Leo because – when his friend Micah dies, it's not just that he dies in front of him. It's this is di- a genius thought. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> Excellent. It's not just that he dies in front of him. It's that his friend dies and suffers no um, no breakage. He's, it's, it's not like the crates themselves crush his friend. The weight of, of the cages of chickens and the trailer coming over on him suffocates him underneath. And he is frozen as this happens, as many people would be in that scenario. Well, and, and there's nothing to do. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of pounds of stuff. He describes that it takes hours for them to remove all the stuff. Mm-hmm. However, still in the back of his head, he mentions that there's some some level of wonder there, of wondering, could I have done something? There's the shame that he can't face people knowing that maybe if I was, you know, Superman, I could have lifted enough crates off him to save him and stop him suffocating. And, and he says that he he called out to Micah uh, something about the chickens on the truck. And mm-hmm. Micah turned around to look at him just as the as the, the back of the truck came unhitched. So there's also the thought maybe if Micah had been looking, he could have avoided it. Right. Some. Th- I th- so I think Leo is it, carrying. It's all. It's all the classic grief, right? Uh, is it my fault? Could I have done something different? Exactly. He's carrying a lot of of self imposed blame that he never lets anyone else touch. He he walks away from it. He froze up. He walks away. He doesn't go to the funeral. Doesn't meet people. Doesn't share his grief with anyone. He he locks it away and goes away. This time, he gets the call from Ginny, and. He puts down the phone. He begins to walk into the next room to put the computer away that he's borrowed from his grandma to call uh, his sister. And he hears a thump and a crash, uh, the sound of a body hitting the floor and maybe a crash. And he kind of stops. He listens to it. And he leaves the room. Puts away the computer off stage, Comes back in. Sits down. And he looks worried for a second makes a decision, and gets up 
and goes to the other door and knocks on it. He's the one who brings Ginny to the hospital. He takes her all, he calls the paramedics, he gets her there, he goes with her the whole way to the hospital and is there when she dies in the hospital. He then goes even further and he writes a speech for this woman because he remembers that his grandma said she has no family and there probably won't be many people there. So I think what Leo goes on is this journey of, he, he, got to, he had the choice to walk away from this again. He had the choice to um, not raise his hand to do anything in a situation that, again, was not really his fault. But this time, he does something. He goes across the door. He is a part of this story that is hard and, and terrible, but he does all that he can do. And I think in that small way, perhaps he heals a bit. And he goes to the funeral. Yes. Right? He's around for the aftermath of the death. And he goes to the funeral. I, I think that you're dead on, right? The, the, what, what the end of the play is is him writing a speech for a funeral. And yeah. that is that, that kind of experience of, you know, we're, just, we're really hitting this word hard. That kind of experience of grief yeah, is yep. what he did not get to do, what he did not allow himself to do when it happened to Micah. Mm-hmm. Now... Ending it with the line about the plants, it's a little, it's still a little interesting. <laughs> right. But I, I, I do think that you're exactly right about the context of the scene and why it really matters in Leo's journey. I also kind of like the commentary that Amy Herzog makes there through Leo's speech. Uh, Leo's speech is about how he only really knows Ginny as her, his grandmother's neighbor. Um, but she had a whole other life than that and that his speech yeah. is stuff that he basically just Googled about mm -hmm. her life and the experiences she had. And he's sort of a way of saying, you know, this person had a whole other life than the one that I really knew anything about. And there is some commentary there which I quite like about characters in plays and that they have sort of a broader lived experience than the character than their actual parts in the drama. And also, it's also a commentary about the people we meet, right? You sort of think about, I, I read something recently that was somebody's essay, and it was about this idea that if you think about your parents, you sort of think about their life beginning with you being born. Right. Like that that's when they became parents. They that's when like our life as a family started and that they had this whole other ex lived experience which you weren't a part of that mm -hmm. you don't consider that much. And that it's the same sort of thing. The people we meet have a whole other life and experience than the ones that we play a small role in. And I like that kind of sweeping commentary. It also is is a nice way to emphasize the fact that Vera and Leo's larger journeys, Vera's of aging and facing death alone, Leo's of grief and loss at his friend and also this complex and contentious relationship he has with his family, how both of those are these long things that will continue to go, and they only overlap slightly. Mm-hmm. But they can still feed into each other, right? Like two things that you wouldn't necessarily, two people at the opposite ends of the spectrum of life um, with, with very different grief that they're going through can still speak into each other's lives, be a part of each other's lives, and bring about some good as a result of it. Mm -hmm. um, this, so, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I think you're right on as well with the, uh, the uh, 
talking about how this play is kind of dealing with these characters' lives that go on regardless. Um, I, 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 that's what I felt like reading this play was I was just like, you know, appearing in these people's living room for a while. We've talked yeah, about the that. The characters are so vivid. I mean, more than a lot of plays that I've that I've experienced, these two, especially these two people, Leo and Vera, really feel like people I could know. Absolutely, and I love the way that Amy Herzog writes them and uses punctuation too. Uh, I'll try to give you a brief example. In the first scene, Leo comes in. And he, you know, because he's got such progressive views and such an interesting sort of uh, way of interacting with the world, what he, a lot of the conversations that he and Vera end up getting into um, fights about are about things that he believes or he experiences of the world that she doesn't necessarily agree with. Um, but one of them is this idea that, you know, he's been AWOL for so long and people have been worried about him. And Vera says, well, why haven't you contacted anybody? People have been worried. And I love the way that the playwright writes this line. Leo, as a response to that, says, and I'm sorry people worried. I am. But that's not something I can take responsibility for. And there's a couple of you could write that line just as it is. And it wouldn't be as effective as the way she writes it because she puts a question mark at the end. Yeah. And I love the, the level. I can hear somebody say that, you know. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's not something I can take responsibility for. It's like the, it adds that great passive aggressive sort of just like not really trying to own what you're saying, but still sort of digging in sort of the hands off. It's not my fault, really. It's so I love how vivid just that question mark is. You can hear people saying these words. I agree. She has managed to uh, uh, the playwright Amy Herzog has managed to capture two different generations of people, I think, in, in probably the best way I've read it, honestly. Um, most of the time, playwrights do a really good job at this, but it's hard to capture vernacular. And there's almost always something, especially for someone who lives in the vernacular, as, you know, someone in, in my generation <laughs> does. I live in these in, in conversations with, with both saying this cadence and listening to people saying this cadence. There's almost always something that falls off in a play like, yeah, you were close, but that's not how it would actually work. Um, I didn't notice that at all this time. Right. She's so great. Her characters are, are like, in this play, they're so, they're almost inarticulate. Like real people are, you know, yeah. sometimes characters in plays have a heightened sense of dialogue. And, and that's a totally legitimate theatrical viewpoint um, where theater is not like real life. So we shouldn't talk like real life. We have sort of right. a heightened level of conversation. This play, I thought, really did uh, just a beautiful job at aiming the other way and almost lowering the level of conversation <laughs> to, to the point where they have a really hard time talking and they're talking mm -hmm. over each other and they're never quite saying what they're really trying to say right it's yep. such a great it makes it makes conversations confusing and frustrating for both parties like they really are in real life i love it yeah there's the instance of the i'm, I'm i don't know the grammar word but the conglomeration word what do you call it um yeah, that, uh, yeah what do you <laughs> that call it? vera uses all the time and it's actually i mean it's connected to that sadness of her not being able to find the words she wants anymore but also but it's also kind of 
it's honest. Like we all throw that in when we can't think of what to say. Like when you try to finish a saying and you just say, and blah, 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 blah. Um, Because you know what you're trying to say and the other person knows what you're trying to say. You just can't find the word for it. And that little detail, it pops up like six times. She says this, this uh, inserts this into conversation, I think makes her a really... Uh, like a character that I've met, I feel like I know this woman a lot more now as a result of that. Yeah, and, and she's such an inter- – you know, they both are just so interesting, not only just the way they talk, which is what we've been talking about, but who they are. I mean, Vera's this 91-year-old communist, <laughs> yeah. uber-progressive, who is facing all these complex challenges and has lived this rich life with these you know crazy stories of husbands. And, and that's another place where the player really emphasizes sort of the broader life of the characters. Vera has some great discussions of what her life before – has, was like that's not a part of the play and actually Beck does too where she talks about all these sort of other parts of her life that don't really relate to the play and yeah. Amanda who we haven't talked about at all but Amanda is a oh, girl yeah. that that uh, Leo brings home in the middle of the play to try to hook up with and she has some great pieces where she reveals this sort of broader part of her life like the fact that her family fled communist China yeah. it just doesn't have much to do with the play but it creates such a beautiful, rich tapestry of characters that are really something other than just what they are in this story. Right. It's it's this this isn't a little world that we come in on. It is a part of the much bigger world and that those mentioning of details that we never get to experience add to that that I love the, the illustration of a rich tapestry, which is totally true. And that's just that's just great character writing, right? Like yeah, you don't I want mean, you, you gotta want, imagine that Amy Herzog like wrote novels about all right. of the characters in this play and then just decided to put them all together for this. I mean, that's how rich the details are about each individual character. I mean, just think about this crazy detail that she specifies and creates a whole persona for this girl that's in one scene, Amanda, who are this, this woman that Leo brings home basically just to sleep with, and she specifies all this stuff about her, that she's a a Chinese-American, that her parents immigrated. They immigrated to flee communist China. Her grandparents and the rest of her family might have died under communist China regime. She's fashion-forward. She wants to become an arts, uh, you you know, a, a, a famous artist. Think about other characters you know of that are in one scene and whether you could really come up with all those <laughs> descriptions that I just gave of Amanda. Yep. I mean, she's a one-scene character. Yep. She has almost nothing to do with the plot. Yep. And that's the level of detail I can give you about that character from reading this play. That's yeah. incredible. In five pages, she's that still that memorable and has that much detail. It's, it is amazing. So we started this conversation by trying to answer this question, what is Leo doing here? Uh, did we ever reach a conclusion? What? What? The, what's the deal, man? Why would you come and stay for potentially weeks with your grandma? What's the? Mm-hmm. What's his goal? Wow, I don't know that he even knows. Um, but I think what and and we that may be something to rest in for a little while. But I think beyond that, I think he knew that he had he had to finish something. I don't think that he knew what he had to finish. Um, I think he got to where he finished it and we don't actually see him finish it because the last scene right before they're going to the funeral, he hasn't put his front tire in the Atlantic yet. 
um, which which uh, symbolically we've been led to believe is the end of his bike journey. And, um, and this isn't a whole cloth idea that we came up with. He says that the reason, his, his justification for why he just took off after Micah died and didn't attend the funeral, didn't stay with the body or anything, is that he felt like he needed to finish something that he and Micah started. Mm-hmm. So he describes that that's his sort of goal for getting to the Atlantic. Yep. And I think he, I think in arriving in New York, he discovers a number of things that he has left undone. Um, he discovers his relationship with his family is blowing in the wind. He discovers his relationship with Beck is not there anymore. Um, what he, what he, when he left it, it was something, and now it's nothing, or certainly not what it was. Um, and so I think, I don't, I don't. I think if anything that he accomplishes, I don't know that he would even define it as a goal, but I think what he accomplishes is he closes some of those chapters. He gives them their due time and then moves forward without letting them disint- or hang out unresolved in his past. I think his goal might be to decide what to do next. You know, he arrives in Vera's apartment. I, I, Pretty, I feel pretty good about saying just because he needs a place to stay. At one point during that first scene when he and Vera kind of get into an argument, he he basically, he almost just says, you know, this isn't great. I have a tent. I'll just go sleep somewhere. Right. So it does, it does to me seem like he's really just there for a place to spend the night. And he talks about how he really needs to get back on the road because he wants to make it all the way back across the country <laughs> before the winter. Yeah. So it does seem like in that first scene, he's not intending anything other than, to sleep someplace for a night. Now, I might be underselling him at that point, but then what he discovers, I think, is that he does not, he really does not want the loneliness of biking solo across the country again, which leaves him with the problem of, well, then what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I think that he has absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. And that his goal in the play is to answer the question, well, what in the world should I do? Mm-hmm. And I think for all, I think for all of the, uh, the the way that he projects himself uh, as this kind of like wandering individual and wandering individual, he goes out and he makes it happen. <laughs> he gets a job interview for positions for a camp out in Colorado, and he you know he arranges it. It's not like he's it, we don't go on the journey with him of let's motivate this person to go out and find a job and live well. He just does it, and then he comes back and said he did it. Um, so I think uh, yeah, I think I think ultimately he does end up hitting that goal if if that if that's his goal and maybe not only just like what to do next but also the sort of question of who to be next because one of the things that he articulates especially to beck is that this core group of friends have all sort of fled this this these ideals that they held as young people that Beck's now in college sort of moving on to be sort of a real adult or a real uh, contributing member of society, which Leo has some issues with for some reason. And apparently their friend group had held some sort of higher standard for their lives that Beck has abandoned. Micah has died. Allison is nowhere to be seen. And so all of, you know, almost similar to Vera's journey where all of her friends and core group of people who believe the same thing as she believe are all dying, uh, Leos are all leaving him in one fashion or another, some by dying, some by actually leaving him, by breaking up with him. And so he's in this place of wondering, if, if all of this is gone, what am I, who am I next? And he 
one thing we haven't talked about, which we may not have time for, but I've, I'm really interested in the play, is this really idyllic picture he paints of Micah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's really affectionate about Micah and who Micah was, even though he's somebody who knows Micah has some real issues. He identifies some of them, and whether he's lying or not in his some of his criticisms of Micah later on in the play, I don't know. But in the scenes where he talks about Micah, he's often really affectionate about him and who he was and what he stood for. And now losing that and losing Beck and losing his family, he's a person without a goal. He, he almost It's almost like his goal is to find a goal. Right. Is to find a pursuit worthy now because all of his other ones have fled. And what mm-hmm. he decides is maybe the pursuit that's worthy is to go home mm-hmm. and fight things out with my family. Yep, and then go go to work in Colorado. <laughs> and yeah, there's there is certainly that that uh, devolution of dream, right? Like you and you start very idyllic with you know two couples. We want to bike across the country. We'll do humanitarian work, and uh, and that'll be great. Um, and what happens is horrible as a result of that. Um, you have the group fall apart. You have one person realize that her dreams can be better actualized by going through the system rather than staying outside of the system. You have people falling away and dreams are then examined a little closer and reevaluated, turned into what they must be. And I think moved forward on progressed on and, uh, Yeah, I think I think I, I don't think that I don't think there's an end there. I think they're progressed on, and that's that's all that we're yeah. Pri- there, privy there's to. honestly not much of a conclusion in this play, which sort of relates to what we said about it, which is that it's really a play without a plot. Yeah, and that's of course a stupid thing to say because it has a plot. Things sure, happen. Things happen. There's a plotted course, <laughs> but there's not like a plot proper. There's not like a. It's really just sort of an experiment in what happens if you put this grieving young man together with this lonely old woman and see what they're, how they affect each other. Mm-hmm. Will they help each other to deal with their respective problems? And in some ways, they really do, especially Vera helping Leo. Unfortunately, it does sort of seem like all Leo has done is for Vera is temporarily provide her some relief from her right. loneliness. I'm not sure he left anything real positive behind. <laughs> uh, he showed he, up. <laughs> he, he was there for a couple of weeks, and now he's gone. And now right. her neighbor's dead, too. So who she's got left, I don't know. Right. He does try to get Lily to come to be with her for a little bit, and he does try to teach her how to use the computer more so she can be more interactive. So, mm-hmm. so maybe some of that will yield some positive results in the future. Yeah, but I think I, I think you're right that most of the help is is given to Leo in that instance rather and, than And that's kind of who he is, you know. He he's a little bit of a punk. <laughs> he's a little bit. He's like a he's... little bit selfish. He's a little bit of a taker, you know? Mm-hmm. He's kind of a black hole. He sucks people and sucks from them. <laughs> and he's he's not he doesn't give a lot back to anybody. Mm-hmm. He's not a great guy. And he doesn't pull any punches either. Like no. I mean, he's, he doesn't do anything for the sake of being nice, really. No, and but he wants everybody to do things for the sake of being nice to him. <laughs> yeah. we've, we've taken sort of a weird turn in this podcast. We've probably been fairly <laughs> affectionate about Leo until right now. And now all of our frustrations about him come out at once. He's a real punk. 
<laughs> he's not the most lovable character you've ever read. Yep. <laughs> like he straight up tells Amanda that I won't you could give it to oh, me, give your number to me, but I'm not going to use it. What a piece <laughs> of crap. He brings this girl home intending to hook up with her. They don't because of blah blah blah. Lots of stuff happens. Lots of stuff they, happens. They end up not and she at the end of that encounter says, "Well, can I give you my number?" and he's just like I probably won't use it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, what's crazy is I'm sure in his head he's doing, like, the honorable thing. Right. Don't want to like, waste why would your I, time. I don't have to lie to this poor... It's like, dude, <laughs> if that's how you really fell, you probably shouldn't have brought her home. <laughs> right. <laughs> you dummy. Think about it first. <laughs> he's he's a little bit of a black hole of a person. He, right. He takes and takes. He doesn't give a lot back. And maybe that's one of the lessons he needs to learn. And maybe maybe he does somewhat learn it because he's willing right. to go home at the end. Maybe that's his effort to give something back to his family. I don't know. We're trying really hard to like give he, him some sort of he's conclusion. He's not a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're running along towards the end of our time. I'm sure there is more you know, that we could talk about. Y'all notice how often Jackson's the one to end these podcasts? <laughs> it's I good that it's he's like... got an eye on the clock because... <laughs> I mean, I'll just talk for hours. Anybody who knows me, you, know, you get me on a subject that I'm interested in, and I just go. And Jackson's all, he's, it's good. He's always the one that's like, Jacob, we're running a little long. It's time to wrap it up. I probably have a good, like, 80, 89% of those phrases, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good. I would keep going. I haven't even looked at how long we've been recording. I have no idea. I could talk for two more hours. Yeah, well, that's kind of the fun of it, and I think this episode proves it, is we have these thoughts in the middle of this conversation we honestly don't talk before we do this and we just run so hopefully you all are enjoying the conversation um if you have anything to add to it anything that you noticed when you read this play or have seen this play especially if you were in this play we would love to hear your thoughts on it and maybe what some of your tensions were with playing these characters and trying to tell these stories well we'd love to hear your thoughts on it so uh hit us up on facebook instagram twitter we're at no script podcast or, or on email, uh, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to continue the conversation with you. And if you've liked this episode, if you like some of our other episodes, please do us a favor, share the episode on your social media page, tell other people about it. You know people who like scripts because you like scripts. So help us spread the word and have people join the conversation. You can listen to our podcast on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on Google Play. If you get a chance, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook. Honestly, Facebook's the easiest way to find the podcast links, too, so that's a yep. great place to do it. A lot of the young crowd now is not into Facebook. I uh, guess. I, I'm a, my wife and I are youth <laughs> pastors, and, and none of our kids use Facebook. I don't I don't really get that. I guess I'm old now, but yeah. that's still a good place to find our podcast <laughs> for the oldies, I guess. I don't know. So we still use it. <laughs> Anyway, you can find anyway. it there. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. You can also find on our outdated social media platforms that we're on. Um, <laughs> we're we're, we're going to be making hey, some fun. We're on Instagram. The we young people Instagram. like Instagram. It's true. We have Twitter, too, which some people use. Um, <laughs> keep an eye on all of those this month because we have some special announcements coming up. We're going to be expanding a little bit. And uh, we, we we're, it's all still in the works, so just keep an eye out. We're going to be posting later on this month uh, about some of the new changes coming to No Script. So keep an eye out on that. But until next week when we're talking about another awesome script, 
I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. We'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.